Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. And we're back. Welcome to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. And our first host, Colin Cachet. Say, <laughs> I made it, boys! Hot dog! <laughs> say hello, everybody. Number I'm one. first Number host, Colin one. Cachet. Number one! <laughs> What's up? Say oh. hello, everybody. I'm first host, Colin Cachet. Hello, everybody. I am sidekick Colin Cachet. <laughs> there you uh, go. There you so. go. Um, gracious graciously accepting it lots been happening i guess in the channels that i sit in and monitor like a weird person um which are mostly security channels and i wanted to bring on trail of bits to discuss some of these things uh so we have uh thank guido here from trail of bits the ceo um first off i wanted hey to say thank you previously for for being a sponsor of the show we definitely appreciate that and two congratulations on um recently being nominated or being a, uh, called a leader in mid-size cybersecurity consulting services from the Forrester Wave report. So um, why don't you introduce yourself and then kind of explain what that is. Yeah, sure. Hey, so I'm Dan Guido, the CEO and co-founder of Trailbits. Um, yeah, the Forrester report thing was really funny because they contacted us and they said, hey, we're going to do a review of your company, whether you work with us or not. So you, you probably should like prepare all these documents that we're asking for from you. And we did, and it took a lot of work and they asked for a lot of really detailed information about um, things like pricing and the clients that we have. And they actually did interviews with clients that we have and talked to them about like, hey, what do you like and don't like about Trail of Bits? Where do you think their strengths and weaknesses are? What have you used them for in the past? Um, and like, what are your general impressions of them versus other, other companies? So they compiled all this information over the course of weeks while also interviewing, uh, I'd say more than a dozen other companies. And when the report came out, we were not only the, the leader in every category, in, like uh, according to the two main categories they, that they review, but they had this entire like list of criteria and all these different measurements they take, um, probably about 20 different measurements. And we were the, uh, the leader in every single one. Um, either tied for being the leader or like the actual leader in every single one, which was awesome. Because uh, like from my perspective, running a company like this, I'm just doing it for me. And I'm trying not to really uh, like, I, I try to focus on the problems the company has. And um, sometimes you can lose sight of like what you've built and where you've come from. So having the kind of third party external validation that, oh yeah, what you're doing is actually pretty good. You should keep doing it is sometimes a nice thing to hear that not too many people say. So the Forrester Report, I think, is is great as kind of an external third-party source of truth that I hope that other people read and, and get some benefit out of, like, understanding why it is that we're a little bit different, hopefully a little bit better than some of the other companies out in the security industry. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, agree with the report here based on my experience with you guys and my experience with other firms and what I've what I've um, kind of grown to known as the security industry. So keep up the good work. Um, Thanks. But 
as for like the, the majority of the content of this episode and what I mentioned earlier, um, as I sit and stare at, at um, security channels and what's going on, uh, last week, I want to say last week, uh, there came across um, a lady who, who found a particular bug in a contract that was asking about things that then threw you and consensus diligence into a, a basically a spiral of figuring out um, why your tooling didn't quite catch this bug. Uh, can you can you give us some background as to what this was, and and then we can lead into like why tooling doesn't quite why tooling didn't or wasn't up to that point catching this type of thing? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, in, in fact, to wrap up the Forrester thing, there were a couple things where they said that we had areas to improve. Like they they told us that our our, our clients had had recognized that they would like to see more work from us. They'd like us to take on larger challenges than we're capable of right now. And that kind of critical feedback is great. I think the Trail of Bits is really good at taking that kind of uh, area of concern or whatever it might be and internalizing it and doing something about it, both from a business perspective and from a technical perspective. So when somebody like Vera from Zeppelin shows up and nerd snipes us with a random bug <laughs> that they found in a given contract, like we actually spend the time to go through and research that and figure out what the root cause is. So it was a really fun exercise for us to go through um, and it, it like th that kind of general approach towards doing work comes from, uh, you know, I, I think I do this whenever I think about trail of bits, it's all about continuous improvement. So um, what they did is uh, they picked out one random bug um, that uh, was discovered in one of the MakerDAO com uh, contracts called DS Chief, uh, which is used for keeping track of votes on uh, proposals inside the MakerDAO governance system. And the bug is actually pretty simple. It's really, it's really like a classic e-voting bug, where if you precede the uh, precede the votes with like negative five votes, and then everybody votes, uh, like negative five votes on one side, and then everybody votes, that the total ends up getting manipulated. Uh, it's like you know missing votes from five people, um, and then you can tip the scales one way or another. Um, so conceptually, it's pretty simple. Uh, and you would think that, oh, okay, this is something where an automated tool should have a really easy job finding a bug, but the implementation of it really kind of prevented that. Uh, the way that the code's written uses like every opportunity to obfuscate what's going on and ends up being a, a, a bug that sits on the edge of what automated reasoning tools are capable of finding. Um, and the reason it does that is because first off, it uses hashing extensively. Uh, you wouldn't think that like something like hashing is is really difficult for an automated tool to reason about, but um, it it really is because there's usually some kind of comparison to an equals where there's a special 256 bit integer or num number of some kind that uh, is required to to gate some kind of function, and it can be challenging for a tool with no prior knowledge and no like thinking brain to just randomly come up with the magic 256 bit integer to, to pass that value. And then the second thing for this function was that it didn't just rely on two hashes, but a relationship. It didn't just rely on one hash, but it relied on a relationship between two different hashes. Um, so the end effect here is that this bug was not very amenable to automated analysis. It was very amenable that like I as a human can understand that if you start with negative five votes on the no side, that you're going to end up with one party tipping the scales, right? As a human, I understand this very easily. But as a machine, if I'm looking through the way that they're actually, they call it etching the votes onto a slate, as if you're like- <laughs> Using old, <laughs> old terms. 
Yeah. Um, the, the way that you're actually doing that etching process onto the slate uh, requires a lot of uh, like fundamental understanding of, of, of uh, like concepts that are hard for tools to learn. Um, so that's what happened. Uh, does, does, does that all make sense ish? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the way I, cause we've had quite a few people on to talk about formal verification and kind of automated tooling or symbolic execution in the past. And it seems as though the majority of the way these things work is they, they look for invariants and then try and prove those invariants wrong, like from a algebraic standpoint. And hashing or hashing of hashing seems to be somewhat of a, like a very difficult case for tooling like that to work. Is that maybe a high level overview? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously we're being a little bit more simplistic, I think. So yeah. like, if, if you wanted the real, like, uh, you know, academic version of this, I could bring somebody else on the show. <laughs> but for the, the high level overview here is that um, hashing itself is a little bit of a challenge for some tools. But then the secondary thing of having this weird intertransaction relationship between two different hashes such that like you could only generate the second hash that you needed. If you were a couple of transactions in already, then you needed to feed that back into the first transaction. And it got to be this like explosion of, of uh, coincidences that you, you really needed to have happen in order to discover the exploitable programming path. Now, is that, um, is that somewhat of a, I mean, I know that you're working on ways in which you can fix this type of thing and you could find this bug. Is it was it originally a naive implementation of your of your solver in which you were able to improve? Or is it something you've had to kind of work around and really have like ad hoc checkers to look for the specific type of thing? Yeah. So let's actually take a step back for a second, because um, I, I think that like it's important to note, and I, you, you already kind of led into this, that not every bug can be discovered with an automated tool. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some bugs that are amenable to it and there are some bugs that are not. And what you're trying to do as a security engineer is you're trying to expand the scope of what you can find automatically as wide as possible, but acknowledging and keeping good track of the bugs that you can't, because the bugs that you can't, those are the ones that you use your brain and your hands to eventually find. And on a time boxed security assessment where you have like two weeks worth of time to find every bug possible and provide the greatest degree of security assurances out the other end, the automated tooling helps you make the most of the limited amount of time that you've got. Um, so at Trail of Bits, the way that we kind of measure the performance of a lot of our automated tools isn't in terms of whether we missed an individual bug or not, but how many in aggregate that we're finding and how useful those tools are over the course of multiple engagements. So a good statistic here is like, we've done, I don't know, a couple dozen security reviews how many of the bugs that we've reported to our clients are we capable of finding with automated tools? Um, and, and the number actually, uh, and this is kind of a really interesting statistic, it's nothing I've, I've ever talked about before. We have a paper where we're documenting some of this stuff. It'll be out soon, so you get the preview. Yes. But only about 20% of all the bugs that we find on security reviews are discoverable in theory, not even in practice, but in theory by automated tools which is kind of a crazy number. So 80% of the of the bugs that we find still require a working brain because they're discussions that we have with the developer where there are mistaken intentions or uh, they're, they're, they're just more abstract risks. They're not simple implementation mistakes in the code. Um, but 
We also look at this from a couple of different other perspectives. Like, let's say in that 20%, what makes them special? Why are they capable of being found by automated tools? And is there anything else we can learn from them? So it turns out that when you look at the high risk vulnerabilities that we find on security reviews, 40% of the high risk stuff can be found by automated tools. Now that's a much better answer. That means that if you invest the time to build automated tooling into your CI pipeline, and take advantage of things like property tests and symbolic execution and symbolic verification, you can eliminate 40% of all the highest risk bugs that a security expert would find in your code. So that's awesome. And then that remaining 60%, you'd have to, you know, consult an expert. Um, so yeah, like that's the way that we think about this at a high level. So the fact that we miss a single bug isn't a surprise to us. There's always these limits of what you're capable of doing with a tool and, and what you're not. And on a security review, the expertise that we provide or that any other security expert should provide is they should be able to look at this code path and say, whoa, there's a lot of weird like hashing going on with all these variables and you know paths that are contingent upon um, you know all, all these weird states in the program. Any kind of automated tool is going to have trouble reviewing this code. We need to give it a boost. And this is not a weird thing. Like what you wanna do is you wanna provide your tools the best help in order to help them find the best bugs. Um, so uh, am, I, am, I, am I making sense? I'm going yeah. on like a crazy monologue yeah, here. Keep going, keep rolling. <laughs> okay. Um, so if you're talking about normal programs, uh, you're talking about like OpenSSL. So I would love to fuzz OpenSSL, right? But OpenSSL, again, has all these weird cryptographic algorithms that are being implemented. And you're going to run into the same kind of gates in the program where an automated tool just can't break through a certain code path. It can't randomly synthesize out of thin air whatever special input it needs to reach the vulnerable code path inside OpenSSL. So what you end up doing is you instrument the build system inside OpenSSL to strip out a lot of those checks. Um, you would call them like magic number checks yeah. where you've got some kind of if statement that checks for a magic number. You could just make them always true, right? And then that gives your fuzzer or your symbolic executor or whatever it might be an additional boost to reach more coverage inside the program. Same thing for like libfuzzer. If you're writing C++ code and you're using LLVM's libfuzzer, instead of having it fuzz from the command line out, outside the program, you would target it to a very specific function, one function, and use that targeting to exercise every single thing that function could do. So as a security expert looking at this code path inside DS Chief, you'd say, wow, this is a complicated code path. Um, I don't know exactly what it's doing, uh, but I can use automated reasoning tools to figure it out quickly. I just have to provide it a little bit of assistance so it knows how to generate hashed addresses of, uh, of proposals. Um, and if I do that, then my automated tools can reach into this code path and discover the bug. Uh, so that's what we did. That was the very first thing. We looked at this code path and we're like, oh, okay, there's no way that a property tester, a fuzzer like Echidna, which is one of the primary tools we use, could ever generate like a hash of a hash of an address of a whatever in, in this like magic format. But you can write uh, a, a one-liner to teach Echidna how to generate input that matches the constraints of this function. And then 
running Echidna with zero modification, it immediately finds the bug. Uh, so that's kind of like um, a really valuable lesson to learn uh, about your tools, that especially with fuzzing, no one fuzzes from the start of a program without instrumenting it or otherwise turning on quote unquote fuzzer mode uh, because you're not going to find the best bugs that way. Well, there's two different, two different, I think, valuable things, maybe more than that, but two that I can think of off the top head. One is um, kind of the general audience learning how to use your tools to then um, help increase the I guess, confidence in the smart contracts they create so that when they go for an audit, they're not, um, they, they've eliminated a lot of the, the low hanging fruit that you can spend more time. Cause I'd imagine most, most, uh, engagements you have are time box. Mm -hmm. Is that a reasonable thing to say? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the longest we'll ever get is like four or six weeks, yeah. which you, know, you have to compare it to like, how long did it take you to write all this code? Like sometimes months, sometimes years, you, you have to think back to like when the first idea came into your brain of when you were going to build the product you're working on. And as a security engineer, uh, you know, we have to race up to the current understanding of that code base in your head in the span of like a two week time period, which can be a very big challenge. Well, I'm going to say I've worked with security folks before and they've done audits on my systems and um, you know, it was before decentralization. So it's not like I'm talking about the same space. It's like years before. Um, and not one of them has ever tried to get into my head. Like ever. <laughs> not once, not once have they ever asked me what my actual intent was. Uh, so I'd argue I you're dealing thinking, with four firms. <laughs> well, yeah, so, um, so, I mean, really. I could, I could... I mean, but yeah, they, they, they wouldn't, they would, they wouldn't do like deep code audits either. A lot of them, they were just kind of like, you know, there's a lot of risk here involved with that. This your company could pay us an extra bajillion for that, but we're not so going to, here's the know. thing with smart contracts is that, and compared to regular software, like with regular software, there are these invariants. There is like a specification that already exists. Like regular software, if you compile and run C++, it should never crash. And I know that if I found a crash, I found a security problem. So I don't actually need as much guidance when I'm reviewing a normal piece of software as I do when I'm reviewing a smart contract. A smart contract, there's no such thing as a crash. I can't write a SQL injection. Like <laughs> I can't just dump the database to screen. What I have to do is I actually have to think about what your intentions were and come up with a mental model in my head of uh, your goals and then find a way to violate those goals. And you would express those goals as either a security property or a spec or an invariant. So that's the name of the game here, which is why these engagements rely so much on talking with developers. And a lot of times you can talk your way into finding bugs without even really looking at the code. Yep. I actually had a, I had a guy I talked to uh, once and he was just doing the audit for me. And, uh, you know, he, like there, he was actually a like, co-founder of the company. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he was pretty active in the project. And I was like, look, man, um, you, I, I don't know if you're actually looking at what we're doing here. And I don't know if you're actually being comprehensive in identifying potential threats in our software. Could you maybe take a look at the code uh, and kind of like figure it out? And his response was pretty clearly, he actually tried to lean on the halting problem and say that, you know, you can never know if code is absolutely perfect or whatever, which I immediately called BS on. But I think it's amazing that you can do that. Is this because smart contracts are relatively small software applications in a relatively consistent, actually extremely consistent environment? 
I mean, well, not really because you got main chain and then you got all these private chains you might be dealing with, but you know what I'm saying? Is it because of the nature of the actual applications you're doing that you can yeah. adopt a business model like this with lower risk? Well, it's definitely not lower risk. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the fun part about working in the security industry and in, in, in blockchain software is that it's all high risk that the, the, the risk of failure in almost every single case is like catastrophic, which kinds of make it kinds of makes, makes it exciting. Um, but yeah, you, you actually, Hit, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, those two things, the fact that the code is small, which enables automated reasoning to make, um, like it, this is just a researcher's playground. A lot of the tools that academics have talked about for years don't really scale beyond software that's like 50,000 or 100,000 lines of code. Uh, there was a DARPA program called uh, Hack, uh, Hack, Hackums, uh, I forget what it's called. I think it's Hackums, um, where they tried to build verified software that flew a a helicopter around. Um, they ended up retrofitting a drone with a bunch of Haskell and then uh, had red teams spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks trying to break it to like take over control of the helicopter and make it go somewhere else and they couldn't. Um, but they use that to prove that once code gets past about 100,000 lines of code, the techniques they're using just aren't really going to scale much further. Uh, the developer effort required starts to get exponential. Um, some of the processing time required to analyze the software also gets prohibitive. But with smart contracts, some of the largest code that we've reviewed is like 10,000 lines, maybe like a shade of, uh, of, of what they were dealing with in that program. So you get all these cool automated reasoning techniques where you're not looking at slices of the program anymore, which is what you're limited to with real software. Now we can take automated reasoning and apply it to the whole program. Um, which is neat. So you can use symbolic verification as a whole program kind of analysis instead of carving out one subsection and using it to discover, you know, some input to one function. Instead, we can look at every single input that's possible to the entire smart contract. Um, so that's what makes this fun. But yeah, the fact that there's only one blockchain, that build systems are really simplistic. Um, the fact that code is small. Uh, it's kind of funny, like a lot of the things that the blockchain community would get a lot of, um, <laughs> bleep me out here, but a lot of crap for is that uh, like their inability to scale. And in fact, their inability to scale a lot of these programs any larger is what makes it possible for us to provide security for them to this degree. <laughs> what's interesting so, about that on top of that because it's inherently money and up upgradability is such a difficult thing to do. Um, it, 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 definitely means you should be putting uh, only high impact things and keeping things relatively small and less complex as possible so that you can actually do tooling like this. So there's almost like, I don't want to say there's a limit to what you be, should be putting on a system like this, but you should be cognizant of it. It's kind of funny. That's what I thought at first too, but then I started to think through that statement a bit more. And there's lots of software out there where people can literally die if it's not safe. Like there is airplane software. There are ICS billions of people. Yeah, there are billions of people running X-ray machines. Uh, the famous example. <laughs> the X-ray machine example, you know, where they they it talks about the liability of a programmer and actually designing things. It, it was like an off by one error or something. I can't remember, and it, it increased the the, the X-ray you know blast by by a factor of ten or something and wound up killing a bunch of people. Yep. Um, yeah, so smart contracts don't have the exclusive control or like the exclusive ownership of the statement that they're dealing with fundamentally high risk. Um, and and the, the one other point that I would make is like iOS, 
and Apple um, have invested billions of dollars more than the blockchain community has into making iOS safe and billions more people use iOS than use any smart contracts. And you can see the like result out the other end that every single release, we still find all these crazy bugs and we've got like FaceTime allowing you to call people and them not having to pick up and being able to spy on them, like all kinds of nonsense bugs. Um, so like everywhere you look, there are real downsides to insecure software and it's not just smart contracts. But what really makes it special is the technical limitations and the fact that there's only one blockchain. The fact that you can write tools that actually work across every single smart contract instead of having to instrument like a thousand different variations of a build system that's out there. So I will say I actually tried to synthesize some of these ideas into a talk that I gave at High Confidence uh, Systems and Software, which is an uh, like a, a very, very govy um, conference that's think maybe even invite only um, in, in the DC area uh, that deals with people that are working on like ICS software. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I gave the keynote address about what blockchain got right, <laughs> which seemed to be oh, a bit man. of a confrontational topic. <laughs> I'd love to be a fly on that wall. But I did publish the slides. They're up on the Trail of Bits publications repo. Maybe you throw them in the show notes. But I walk through like um, it, it, exactly all the things that we're talking about. So, so let's close this loop here. Where were we? Well, what, uh, I wanted, what I wanted to kind of do with this, this conversation was um, kind of show uh, a, a few things that are important about getting audits in this space. Um, I spend a lot of my time thinking about getting audits in this space and then interacting with people who give audits. And, and one of the things is as a person who's preparing for an audit, it's, it's very difficult to go through a checklist of things or understand what I need to do so that, um, like you said, you get up and running on the thing that I've been thinking about for months in less than a week. Uh, and so like as, as someone who's preparing for an audit, I should be spending a good portion of my time um, using the available tooling to, to remove the low hanging fruit as well as document as well as possible what my intentions are and then how I've implemented those intentions. So that the auditor, for one, it's saving me a bunch of money. So you get up to speed quickly and are working on um, things you shouldn't have to. And and then two, you, you can actually like do a better job and have a more pleasurable experience of not trying to figure out what the hell I'm trying to do. Yeah, so let me wrap up the conversation about this bug in particular, which is that um, I, I think there's also some weird divergences between writing automated tools for conventional software versus blockchain software, where for this DS chief bug, there was this intertransaction relationship between these two hashes. And what we, when we step back and we thought about it as a system, we realized that the, um, this is kind of a common pattern of behavior that like lots of programs, like you'll, you'll call an API, you'll get a cookie back. And then the second transaction, you'll take that cookie, that like session token, whatever, and give it to a second function in order to open up access to whatever logic is behind it. That is a really standard thing that happens. So by virtue of studying this code path and thinking about it as more of an abstract system, we realized there were ways that we could improve our tools to deal with cases like this automatically. So it helped us uh, improve the coverage, uh, the ability to gain coverage of all of our tools 
Um, and that relied on having some kind of domain knowledge about uh, smart contracts in general, about thinking about these things as smart contracts instead of just as like a standard testing kind of problem. Um, so today, you don't even have to do that instrumentation I talked about with Echidna. It just finds the bug automatically with zero configuration, and that's awesome. So I'd love to find other cases like this DS chief bug where it's kind of on the limits of what we can do automatically and then find a way to really push up against it uh, with some more innovative domain-specific enhancements. But as for like, what are the key takeaways of this and what do uh, teams like yours need to understand? So this goes back to some of the trending that I talked about before. Like there is a huge amount of risk that you can take off the table if you're doing security testing correctly. Now in the blockchain community, what a lot of people do to prepare for an audit is they write unit tests. They all have a really good understanding that tests are good and we should get as close to 100% as possible. And then we should document those tests and we should give it to the security auditors when we walk in the door. Now, the funny thing is I've also kept statistics about how useful that activity is. And you'll be surprised to know that there is zero correlation between coverage of unit tests and the number and severity of bugs that we find on engagements. Interesting. And the answer is obvious. Yeah, it's 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 super funny. <laughs> it's biased. Like, yeah, the 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 answer is obvious because unit tests, functional tests, whatever integration tests, they're all positive tests. What you're testing is if the code works correctly when given correct input. Security tests are negative tests. They're what the function would do if you give it something it's not supposed to take. So of course there would be complete and total separation of what unit tests and security tests are capable of finding. And unit tests will never find a security bug because they're only testing the things that it's supposed to do. So in fact, when you're preparing for a security review, the most important thing that you should do is try to write negative tests, try to come up with what are the boundaries of what this function should do? Are there cases that it should or shouldn't handle? Um, like it's, it's not enough to just say that like when, when the input is four, six should come out the other end. Um, that doesn't actually gain you benefit from a security perspective. Uh, you can write negative tests by hand, like, you know, you can uh, do them one at a time. But the benefit of things like Echidna and Manticore is they are automated test generators. They exist to rapidly, sometimes <laughs> extremely rapidly, generate millions, hundreds of millions of tests that gain maximal coverage across your system by expressing a simple property. So in this DS chief case, uh, the simple property, and I'm sure you'll link to the Zeppelin forum where this is being discussed. Yeah. But the simple property uh, that we wrote is that when the total number of votes in the uh, on the slate doesn't match uh, the number that were collected, throw um, an error, right? That's, that's the property. It's one line. It's uh, ever matched equals slates of slate equals nay. Um, what Echidna does is it automatically generates tests, um, in this case, 50,000 tests that try to violate that property. And you don't have to write a single one of those tests. You just express the high-level property. So like, this isn't a wo weird, wonky security tool. Like, If you understand unit testing really well, this is just the, like the just finished stranger thing. This is like the upside down version <laughs> of unit tests. Um, and it helps you get far, far greater coverage uh, of your testing across your entire code base than if you just did your one straightforward positive unit test, you know, at a time.
Makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that's something that I, I, I get told quite a bit. Well, I have unit tests. It's fine. We can just publish them. <laughs> yeah. It's super frustrating because there's a bunch of people in the community that are like, oh, you know, every security engineer needs to report all the unit tests they found on engagements. And I've always pushed back against it because I think it's a useless endeavor. Like I have never once looked at unit tests and said, oh, great, we're not going to find any bugs because you have 100% coverage of your unit tests. The only thing that it does is it might help us theorize what good properties that we can extract from the code. It makes the conversation that we have with you where we try and define security properties a little bit more structured. Yeah, it's a formalization of what how they think things should work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, so takeaway one was it's awesome to find cases like this where we can improve uh, our, um, our tools so the coverage they can find is greater. Um, Outcome two was the really nice lesson learned that uh, like the, the greatest value from a security engagement or security review is your ability to speak to a security engineer. <laughs> um, number two uh, is, is, or number three is kind of like um, more back to the bug that there's a lot of SaaS services out there. I operate one. It's called Critic. And it automatically runs security tests across your entire code base based on our tools. It's super awesome. You should use it. But it's not going to find every bug automatically because there are all kinds of cases inside your code base that have these gates in them, just like the DS chief library, that automated tools can't see into. And unless you have a security expert that reviews the code base for testability, then you're going to have missing coverage. So that's another thing that we do when we look at code bases for the first time is we try and enhance their testability. And that actually is the one of the third legs of why testing blockchain software is so much different than conventional software. It's just inherently testable. Um, that beyond just running on the same blockchain, everybody running on the same blockchain, and beyond the code being small, it's also very transparent. It's really easy to test, to hook up test generators to all the functions that are there. So writing testable code is as important as taking advantage of all kinds of neat uh, testing tools. Um, so that's another really important takeaway that you need to write testable software and you need to understand what kinds of software is not testable. Yeah, um, I tried to, I was actually thinking of asking you that question. Glad you actually brought it up is that you just want to stay away from too many monolithic, you want to isolate your concerns, you know, when you design software. And that way you can, for instance, in your case, uh, just go through 50,000 potential inputs over that particular function because that particular function only does one dang thing. And then you can isolate the interaction and find exactly where the problem is occurring. Um, but yeah, no. Yeah. So, um, and I, I mean, I guess if there were any other takeaways, it's just that uh, kind of the lessons that we learned from improving our tools where we do something now called constant mining, where I don't really care how these hash values get created inside the context of this one particular bug, but I know that the first transaction that gets completed results in a constant value, a hash of something that I should save and I should reuse it to replay it later. Um, and that was a kind of way of thinking about this problem that was a lot more domain specific. And I think that in order to really improve the automated reasoning tools that we have, the frontier that we're on now is I think we've tried a lot of the 
generic uh, academic techniques and the improvements we're going to make from here on out are going to be things like thinking about smart contracts as smart contracts um, with improvements like constant mining, like the one that I just described. Uh, Can you explain so, that a little better? Because I feel like it's 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 a uh, it may have been lost because it was somewhat lost on me until I thought about it a little bit more. Constant mining is looking for something that happens within smart contracts, and it outputs some constant. And then you say, okay, we now are able to check for this particular constant and know that and know like or like under this particular bait behavior, it could be this particular constant, which allows you to insert that into the tooling to have another additional check, right? Yeah, so it builds a dictionary as it goes. So like the thing here is if if you gave AF like everybody knows AFL, if you, if you know anything about security, AFL is like the biggest meme in the universe because it's got a cute funny name and it has a neat ASCII uh interface that uh, has colors and things. Yeah, it ruined, that's that's the reputation it has, it ruins software. When really AFL is kind of a <laughs> it's in terms of fuzzers it's extraordinarily slow and for fuzzers being slow means that it's bad. Um, the thing with AFL is it's easy to use, so everybody uses it. It's great. But AFL would never find a bug like this GS chief bug. Uh, CLI, um, its counterpart for uh, like uh, symbolic execution, also would never find a bug like this. And it's because like in a normal program, you give it some bytes and it seg faults or it doesn't. But smart contracts make these like sequential atomic transactions. They have a state machine. You provide one input, everything stops till it gets evaluated, and the state changes. Some variables change their value, and it doesn't it doesn't crash. It just gets you into a weird corner case that you discover later that you didn't want. Um, so that kind of mode of behavior isn't one that's found in traditional software. And when you think about testing a piece of software that is like a state machine that performs sequential atomic transactions, the tools that you build for that kind of system look different than AFL and CLI and the rest of those things. Uh, so that's where the constant mining stuff came up from, where on every single execution, we're scraping the entire state of the program to build up a dictionary and then using that dictionary to start from the beginning again and try to transact over all the states where we just were with the benefit of that additional knowledge. Um, that is kind of uh, something that's a little bit more unique to smart contracts where it, it really helps you discover those hidden states. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, more kind of innovations like that are, are probably in the pipeline as we discover these really weird corner cases like this DS chief bug. But also in general, as a developer, you should just write more testable code so that we don't have to struggle like this for <laughs> each individual weird thing you can do in Solidity. Well, that, 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 I mean, are these innovations in automated testing ever gonna, are they gonna always be pigeonholed to blockchain specific testing? Or can, are, they, are these gonna be like amenable to traditional security software testing? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some things that port over, but like, <laughs> this is like the fun story about AI and machine learning too. Like all these general purpose kind of, let's just dump everything into an unlabeled data set and try to run a naive classifier across the whole thing and we'll see what happens. Singularity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work like that. Like you actually have to have some knowledge of the data set that you're working with and have some kind of expert that comes in and labels it. and. 
uh, apply techniques that work for that data set. And the same thing is true for security. Uh, there are certain techniques that are going to have a lot more mileage when it comes to smart contracts than for conventional software. Um, and I, I think that's where we're starting to grow because I think the whole length of 2019, or sorry, of 2018, we spent reinventing a lot of the state of the art in terms of conventional software testing on blockchain tools. Mm -hmm. And now in 2019, we're starting to get much better benchmarks. Uh, the chain security folks have a really great benchmark they're about to release that they've been using for their own tools. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to look at it. Uh, we've also been coming up with all kinds of neat benchmarks and logic bombs and things like that to test our software against. And now that we've got better measurement of what it can and can't do, um, the improvements that we find in 2019 are looking a lot more like this. Uh, Something also that's interesting about this space that you can't get traditionally is that um, you have a data set, an ever-growing data set of things you can test forever. Like, it, you know, you can test every smart contract that's ever been in existence continuously for various things. Yes. So if you find something new, you're like, okay, well, let's just test it against the corpus of all knowledge that's been out there so far. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes blockchain awesome. And uh, in fact, now that we've programmed these additional uh, smarts into tools like Echidna and Manticore, we're going to go back and we're going to run it on the entire blockchain and see what it finds. Um, and there's probably going to be a whole lot of new states that we can discover. And it doesn't, we don't know if those new states are good or bad because again, there's no crashes, right? So we'll have to write some heuristics or manually look through the weird places that we discover. But I, I am pretty certain that this uh, constant mining technique for Echidna in particular is, is going to find us a lot of weird stuff. And whether that weird stuff is consequential or not, I'm not sure. I mean, Manticore, we're taking an entirely different approach. It's not so much constant mining as um, we're going back and reading a lot of Microsoft research papers uh, from uh, a few key individuals and uh, trying to teach it to understand what hashing is, which is a somewhat difficult challenge. Um, and I, I think it might be able to generically solve a lot of these issues that enable it to get massively improved coverage uh, since hashing tends to be a widely used technique inside of smart contracts and Ethereum in general, uh, which ends up being probably one of the worst design decisions in terms of testability uh, that, that, that has been made. Like for all the improvements that have been done to smart contracts in terms of testability, the overuse of hashing as a technique for like control flow is, is the worst. That's actually the question I wanted to ask next is, is, mm. is if you could give advice to the smart contract writing community about what not to do or like what the, the top most uh, behaviors that lead to insecure code, like what, what would that be? Like, what are you seeing most? And like, what could you, if you could get rid of a certain type of behavior, what would it be? Um, I mean, I think, I think people should just use the tools that are out there already. <laughs> That's kind of a cop-out answer, but we have invested years and years worth of development effort into synthesizing our knowledge inside of Slither, which forms the backbone of Critic, our SaaS service of the same, and people don't run it. Uh, so the, the neat thing is with, with Trail of Bits, we've also created this step function where if you only have five minutes to do 
security stuff for your code base, you run Slither. You press the big red button on Slither and then out pops like a couple of issues. If you've got an hour to invest in security stuff, then you use Echidna. And Echidna provides better results than Slither does because it it's not reliant upon a database of pre-programmed knowledge. It just finds the invariance that you express. Um, and then if you've got a day, or, or really more if you've got like three days, uh, and you want to provide much greater proof of assurance in your code base, then you use Manticore. Um, so I think a lot of people stop short with unit tests and they write great documentation, but then they're scared of taking the next step of using security tools. Uh, and I, I, I think that there's immense benefit to doing so for the reasons I expressed before, that unit tests are basically worthless for finding security bugs. They don't protect you. Uh, you have to do something different. And I think if people have to do something different, the first thing they should do is use Slither. The second thing they should do is use Echidna. And once you've got that list of properties from Echidna, because Echidna relies on having a list of properties, you can start to express those properties in different formats. You can express them as something that gets symbolically verified. You can express them as something that gets uh, verified in any other different language. But coming up with that list of properties, security properties, is usually the hardest part. Um, you have to think about that. So uh, uh, yeah. given the nature of the industry right now, the you know the improvement upon the security tools uh your knowledge of how like if you were if you were to hire someone such as yourself let's just say you are a business developer okay and you want to you're a business creator you're an entrepreneur you know you're a guy going out there trying to create something and you have these smart contracts and stuff would you how would you mitigate your risk best i mean because one of the problems I'm, I'm seeing is that we keep finding these bugs despite getting better at finding bugs we keep finding mission critical bugs too. Like really bad stuff happens, mm -hmm. um, and it's still happening. Um, despite getting better, despite getting really good at it, we're still finding new stuff all the time. Um, so, what is your recommendation to somebody who wants to start a business using Ethereum and Solidity um, to kind of mitigate risk associated with storing like a large amount of money in a smart contract, for instance? Like, <laughs> you know I mean, like, how do you how do you handle this, right? <laughs> Yeah, that is the, the question of the hour. Um, so there's a couple of things about that. I think that while the nature of blockchain software leads to highly testable software, um, the tools that we're using to build that highly testable, like, so th there's two different opposing forces here. There's the testability of the code and then the upfront, like foundational security of it. And what we found is that testability kind of wins here, that you can have every broken development tool in the universe up against Echidna and Manticore and a couple other like smart security experts. And you can basically find almost all the bugs. <laughs> and that's insane because the tools that we're using to build smart contracts right now are extraordinarily poor. Um, Remix is not an IDE in any <laughs> sense that I would compare it to like Visual Studio. Um, uh, the Solidity language itself is filled with foot guns. The compiler gives you no help at all. Uh, the design of both the Solidity language and the underlying EVM uh, binary format are insane. But uh, out the other end, the, the testability of the code generally wins because we're capable of running really advanced academic techniques like symbolic execution to basically find all the bugs, which is cool. Um, 
So where I think the community needs to go is we need to eliminate the foot guns. <laughs> Why depend on just the testability when you can also get upfront solid engineering tools? Um, and that's where we're putting a lot of effort into Slither. I want to use Slither to replace the Solidity compiler. It's already got two of the most important pieces. It can take a front-end uh, Solidity program in, and then it can perform analyses on it with a real IR. Not not a not a high level assembly language like um, what's their thing called Yule, uh, which I would not consider a real IR not yet. Um, if I just generate the, the if I just write the code generation piece, we can compile programs to EVM with a tool that automatically checks for the 60, 65 different issues that we know about that are catastrophic security issues, and we can also probably optimize the code better too make you use less gas. Um, so that's a real corner that I think the community needs to turn because the output of a lot of these broken tools is what creates the requirement to perform this insane level of testing in the first place. Uh, so that's my recommendation. We need to continue to invest in the foundational technology and, and have a really strong vision behind eliminating these foot guns. Like we need solidity minus minus. Yeah, you're looking at you're looking at solidity. You pointed out the problems we keep hearing over and over again. And like, I, I, I think that, by the way, I just whenever I, I issue a criticism about anything in the Ethereum space, I, I really want to preface it with those guys did an amazing job. We all have like there's a whole industry built around what they've done. We're all here. Let's um, put it that way. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. So like anything I say with regard to that, please take that with, you know, that preface. They, they do amazing work. Uh, but solidity was feels hacked together. It wasn't well thought out. Like it could have been more effort into making sure that was more, more, um, more than what it is. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know though. I keep hearing the same stuff over and over again. No, and you're, just, you're right. Yeah. I mean, and and it, was, it was, it was, it was a time issue in my opinion. They wanted to get something out and that was better than not getting something out or waiting around, you know, um, to make it perfect. I get that. I get that. And we needed this playground for this space to take off. I mean, it created the ICO boom, which funded most of the people you talk to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's fantastic. But uh, what do you look at as far as like the thoughts on keeping Solidity? Um, is it something that you would think that maybe the community might want to consider migrating? I mean, obviously, you awesome is uh, a thing we're looking at. But one of the problems that uh, one of the solutions that people keep proposing is the idea of things like uh, Pact from Cadena where it's mm -hmm. a, a, a formally verifiable because it's not Turing complete. Um, do you feel as though migrating to a language more like that or some other language similar to that would be beneficial to the ecosystem on the whole? Um, yeah, I'm generally a fan of these simplified DSLs that allow you to express like 99% of what you'd like to do with a smart contract, but with also 99% less risk. Um, that's generally a good idea. Uh, with with Solidity, yeah, I think we probably want to continue evolving it. Like, we're not going to drop it. There's already a lot of money invested into building Solidity applications and tools and, and whatnot. But we need to evolve it to a safer place. And that means eliminating some features that we know people can't use right and providing compiler tools that give actionable, at the time you need it, advice and and fail builds when you're trying to do things that aren't safe now um, that's that's speaking to solidity specifically but solidity just compiles to a series of opcodes 
yeah. you know, like, does the EVM need this sort of downgrade as well? Is there something that maybe, or restrictions placed around what can and cannot be done within the machine stack? Yeah, so at, at, I think the front end is really more where the security issues are. I think most of the security issues that you're finding in Ethereum are the result of Solidity, not EVM. Um, however, if you did modify EVM, there's probably some analytical gains that you could get that the tooling that we build around EFM, uh, e e EVM is, is somewhat limited because of the strange way that it operates. Uh, like it being a stack machine makes it kind of impenetrable to review by hand and some aspects of what it does unrecoverable. And I think that there are probably some decisions I would like to unwind from, from EVM to make it easier to analyze. Uh, but at the end of the day, the security issues that we're seeing in the Ethereum ecos ecosystem all come from Solidity being filled with foot guns. Uh, we actually have a talk about this one too. <laughs> I just have like a dozen of these sitting around for whenever people ask me questions. Uh, a guy on my team, Evan Sultanic, gave a talk called Anatomy of an Unsafe Smart Contract Programming Language, where he walked through some of the design decisions behind Solidity and the, their ramifications of um, in terms of security of each of them. Yeah, you actually did that during the uh, Empire Hacking. That was that. Yes. It's a, it's a very engaging talk. It was a good um, talk. I enjoyed that one. We have a video of it. I'll send you. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, I guess we can probably start to wrap. I, I, there's a quick question, and then we can start to wrap from there. Um, you mentioned that it's like, the, the I guess, the where the problems lie. Is it the EVM, or is it like more the, the, the user-facing part of Solidity? Uh, what about the translation between uh, yeah, the user kind of facing part to the, to the EVM. Like you can actually have problems with that translation of the Solidity code works, oh, I think it should work, but actually when it translates it to EVM, it's, it's, it's messed up. And that's the compiler itself. And that's what you spoke yep. to a little bit earlier. I think that's also a very key point and something we can fix drastically. Yeah, so there have been a couple of compiler bugs. Um, I, I think the, the better way to think about that in terms of the middle of the compiler, uh, being not as good as it can be, is, is that it's an opportunity cost. That typically, um, that middle part of a compiler is what's providing you guidance about warnings and errors. When you compile something with LLVM, it gives you this extremely rich, usually color-coded information about exactly where you screwed up. And with Solidity, you don't get that. You don't get any real guidance. You just basically get, you know, you're back in undergrad when you're just trying to brute force your C++ homework into it, it compiles and links or it doesn't. <laughs> um, That's a so what I, what I think we really need is, and what, this is what we're trying to build with Slither, is the ability to provide rich information back, back through the front end, back to the user, back to the developer rather, about what they've built and how it works. And because of the limitations of how the Solidity compiler works today, that's not possible, but it is with Slither. Um, so we're investing much, much more effort into tools like that so that people can learn more about the code they write and end up writing better code because they have advanced compiler tools that help them do it. Right. Uh, and, and I guess to wrap up, like, um, are there any questions that you wish I would have asked that we didn't get to ask? Um, I don't another chance to shill away if you'd like to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the, the if you do anything after listening to this podcast, go grab yourself a copy of Slither, run it, 
Um, I think that's like the easiest thing that people can do. Don't don't fool yourself into thinking that unit tests are the end of the security story or that they're going to help you at all. Like they're helpful, but they're not helpful for security. Um, and uh, don't think that automated tools are either the answer or never the answer. It's somewhere in between. Like automated tools won't find every bug, but also automated tools will find a lot of bugs. Uh, you need to end up thinking about what your code should do and have a conversation with a smart security engineer to reason out um, whether that thing it's doing is safe or not. Uh, but automated tools can help a lot. So, um, yeah. I, I that, agree with it. all of that. Um, <laughs> where do people go to find out more? Uh, so in general, our blog always has extremely high quality writing on it. Um, I think people should read it. It's we spend a lot of effort on it, um, but you can always follow our Twitter at uh, Trail of Bits, where we'll post low volume, high quality information about blockchain security and every other kind of security. Nice, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun.